Welcome to In the Demo, a show about the stories that get told about groups, how those stories got made, what we think those stories get wrong, and why it matters. You hosts, Farah Bostic is the founder and head of research and strategy of The Difference Engine, a strategic insights consultancy focused on helping business leaders make decisions. Adam Piano, author and brand consultant and managing director of brand strategy at Arizona State University. You are now in the demo. I'm Adam Pierno, Generation X. I'm Farah Bostic, uh, slowly coming to terms with the fact that I'm Gen X. <laughs> One of us. One <laughs> of us. <laughs> it's about uh, time. I know. 20 years later or whatever, doing this show and doing all of this research and thinking a lot about millennials. More than you wanted to. More than I think I wanted to. Has reluctantly made me identify more as a Gen Xer. Yeah. Because um, I'm like, no. <laughs> These kids like, are fucking nerds and I don't want to be associated. <laughs> exactly. So we've talked a lot about this. You use the phrase, which I love, er text of yeah. the millennial myth, millennials rising, comes out 99, early 2000, something like that. And the very first, you know, once you get past the introduction and forward, the very first quote in the very first chapter, the first line is this quote from a millennial um, who's like in high school at the time, that's part of the research pool that makes up this book, talking about like, I don't even remember the quote, but you know, we're, we're special, it's our time to shine or something like that. Exactly. And and it's all very optimistic. It also doesn't, you know, it doesn't say anything specific, but you know, it's a 16 or 17 or 18 year old talking about how they feel about their generation. This is the way the whole story begins is from this, um, like the, the, the narrative gets established that it is millennials themselves who see themselves as exceptional. And, um, and it's kind of an interesting thing to say as like the opener is that like they're already so self-possessed that they know that they have all this amazing potential to be the greatest generation. And then it starts to lay out the case for what they think the shape of the mindset and the demographics and the potential of that generation is. Um, and then you had the great idea to try to find that person. <laughs> I don't know if it was a great idea. I think we got pretty lucky. It was a great idea. Um, I reading the book and rereading the book. It starts with a quote from, I think she may have been 15, mm, 15 mm -hmm. or 16. And then the authors vacillate between hoisting up that quote. I mean, they don't literally refer to the quote, but they, they lean heavily on the themes of that quote mm -hmm. for, I would say approximately 50% of the book is we agree this is this generation is going to be amazing they are the future it's their time to shine etc and the other half of the book being like can you believe these self-interested egotistical narcissists that are behind us in line trying to trying to tell us how great they're going to be and i just think that is wild the, mm -hmm. the way the book swings from but I wanted to know, and I think you wanted to know this as well. I'm going to put these words in your mouth. <laughs> you know, what's the, what was her takeaway 
as the person giving that quote, were the authors fair to her? You know, did she, how did she feel about the process of participating in the story? Um, I did not think we would actually be able to find her. I think when you, when we talked way before we were recording anything and you, you pointed out like, oh yeah, this is the person that's quoted. You, you were, had a head start on reading the book before I got it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was weeks later of us trying to figure out, okay, how do we, how do we take, how do we parse this content? How do we take this book apart? It was weeks and weeks later. I was like, let me just Google and see if this person is someone we can either reach. At that point, I thought it was a he. I thought Tyler Hudgens was a man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They Um, weren't clear about that in the book. Yeah. No, no. I think I found an Instagram or something before I found a LinkedIn and I sent them to you. And I was like, should we try? And the reason I did that and the reason I tell that story is because one, we found her and uh, you're going to hear that (laughs) conversation next. But two, reading that quote and then getting chapters and chapters into the book, almost unwittingly, they laid out a much more interesting story because that book is supposed to be a forecast. Mm-hmm. And it it leaves you wondering reading it 20 years later, which these books are notoriously short shelf life books. Mm-hmm. What happened to that? What like what happened to that? It's like um uh ESPN on Sunday morning. You got 10 guys in suits who used to play football, all saying what teams are going to win. And then nobody ever looks back four hours later to see if they were right or wrong. (laughs) It's just like, oh, here's my bold prediction, right? Right, right. Totally unaccountable for what you said. Nobody cares. Well, these two guys wrote this book and they led with the quote from a 15-year-old high school girl and they're totally unaccountable for what that represented for her, what it meant in her life and in a way for the entire generation there's a, I wouldn't say they were reckless, but there's sort of a accountability that is just left. Yeah. It's, it's, I think what's interesting as a, as a researcher, especially a qualitative researcher, I think it's also interesting to, you know, there's always a little bit of playing fast and loose. You use these quotes as emblematic of some theme that presumably was more representative than just one person. And um, and you want to use it to humanize and and concretize that that idea. Yeah. Um, but you are using that person as an avatar at that point. They no longer become just themselves. They're like a representative of this other thing. And I think the other part of us looking at that book and and at how like it it couldn't seem to decide like what was it optimistic or was it pessimistic about this generation? Yes, exactly. And so it kind of sets up. It really is in this way, the kind of Rosetta Stone of the whole thing, because it's like we spend the first 10 years being really optimistic about millennials and then the heel turn happens and they're the villain of the piece. And it's like that was that was there from the beginning. Right. This potential to be the worst thing that ever happened to society or civilization was in the book. And so I think we were like to be a fly on the wall in 98 99 whatever the period of time was where they were doing their research and surveying these kids and talking to these teachers and putting their thoughts on paper and would have been amazing next best thing is talk to the people they talk to and then just for myself as as a researcher like the the number of times i have wanted like you know some person i've interviewed 10 years ago pops into my head again and i'm like oh, i wonder whatever happened to that person yeah. you know and so this also was just kind of cool from that point of view of she she got asked a question when she was 15 
I'm sure she's been asked about it since then, but to, for us to be able to go ask her about it again, um, felt like time travel. Yeah. Well, you're about to hear, uh, apparently she, she, we do talk about how often this comes up in her life and, uh, she does, she does talk about it. And a lot of, um, she proactively brings up a lot of the themes that you and I have been discussing. So I, I, in, uh, spirit of full disclosure, I shared our first episode, which was recorded. Um, I think she listened to some of it. She liked the idea. She wanted to know the story. And then she told, she told me, uh, in a one-on-one conversation on her way to work, um, (laughs) what her story was. And I, I would like to say for the record, she's an amazing person and has an amazing perspective. Mm -hmm. And so in a lot of these cases, somebody could be used by the media and media in quotes. Um, I feel very um, red, red pilled right now, like the mainstream media. (laughs) A lot of times people can be used in a book or in a news story or in some journalistic endeavor and spit out the other side. And I was really impressed by Tyler's, uh, wherewithal and her understanding of the context and like pretty much an interesting dismissal of like, yeah, I did that. Let me tell you about my life. It's really interesting. And she's not wrong. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and I think she's also interesting because, it, you know, when we were looking at what is McLean and looking at like demographic census data, stuff like that, I think we certainly had the story in our heads of, you know, these are kids of various types of government workers or contractors or military. And, um, and she is definitely part of that story. Um, But it also, I think drove home and this comes up in, in a, in another set of interviews you've done that, that are the kind of um, almost it's, this isn't the right word, but kind of the transientness of this place. Mm-hmm. That like, there's not a, I don't know, I don't know how many people are really from McLean, Virginia, right? And so she comes in with a set of experiences and perspectives from having lived all over the place yeah. um, as like a Navy kid, I think, right? Uh-huh. And um, and not being in the BMW for your 16th birthday set. <laughs> um, and just like, so she has this kind of observer's eye as much as she has um, the, the firsthand experience of having been there. Um, and I, I thought that was really a, part of what made her so insightful was that she'd been other places and seen other things. Yeah. So would you mind starting with um, just slating with introducing yourself and your generation? I am Tyler Hudgens and I'm a millennial. Tyler, can you tell me a little bit about your life today? We were just catching up, but can you just tell me a little bit more about what you do? And and you don't have to talk about specifically where you're headed, but kind of just describe your life in a in a couple of paragraphs. Sure. Um, I work for a boutique company that is contracted by larger companies to produce events around the country. Um, some of them really amazing and exclusive, and I'm really fortunate to get to do what I love for a living. Um, I'm based in Miami. I travel a lot for work. I have a six-year-old dog named Bowie. He's a rescue. Um, Super tight with my family. All my best friends live in different cities. What else? (laughs) Do you, do you travel to, to, from city to city visiting friends? 
I do. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I grew up with a father who was in the Navy, so we moved a lot growing up. So I'm used to kind of staying in touch with people in in different places. And um, I'm fortunate enough that when I land somewhere for work, I usually have friends that are local to that area that I'm able to catch up with. Oh, that's awesome. And when you you're in Miami, so a lot of people are probably desperate to come visit you. Right, right. Right around now is when it starts. Everyone's yeah. like, um, hey, can we come visit? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, it's winter where you are. It's snowing. Or now you want to come visit? Yeah, so it starts to feel like a really good idea, right? So you mentioned your dad was in the Navy. And talk a little bit about where you about growing up and kind of what your home life was like and, you know, what your what your community life was like. Uh, growing up? Yeah. Well, then coastlines, kind of in port cities, he was a pilot um, and moved every two to three years. So I was at McLean for my first three years of high school. Oh, so did you grow up there when you were little or were you moving like every, every three years and you spent just those three years in McLean? Yep. I just spent those three years in McLean and ended up going back um, and living in DC for a while after the fact. And do you consider McLean part of like the DC metro area? We call it the DMV, um, DC, Maryland and Virginia. So it's definitely Northern Virginia. Um, I consider it maybe a suburb of DC. Mm-hmm. And where did you move after McLean? Uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Oh, that's beautiful too, man. You're pretty lucky. You've lived in some amazing places. I, I know I have. Yeah. <laughs> and so how, so you've seen a lot of the world, you continue to see a lot of the world in your work traveling from city to city. So I was wondering if you could talk about what McLean was like as a community, as a town, maybe get into some comparison of, of, you know, other places you've lived or other places you've visited just in terms of, you know, the broad strokes of what sure, makes it stand exactly. out? Um, well, the military, the the Navy and all branches of the military like to build their bases in places where um, land is less expensive. So a lot of times we would be stationed on a base in an area where, um, you know, there was a lot of poverty or not great school systems and, you know, people just kind of struggling to make it through today. So mm-hmm. my dad got stationed at the Pentagon and we moved, we moved to Falls Church to be in the Plain School District um, because it was, you know, such a top school. Um, it was a little bit of a culture shock to kind of go to school with Diplomats' kids and senators' kids, and um, a lot of a lot of those kids were also in private schools, so it wasn't you know kind of as intimidating as it could have been. But it was definitely a new experience. Was it different even than when you moved to your next when you moved to uh, North Carolina? Like, did you notice like, oh yeah, that was strange? I think that when you're in it, you don't think of it as strange because it's just it's just how it is and everyone is having the same experience. And then once you're removed from it and can reflect back on it, you're kind of like, Oh wow, that was really unique. Um, I worked at, I worked at the Starbucks on Chambridge road when I turned 15 and I would, you know, just make coffee in the mornings for secret service agents and, (laughs) and the people that the secret service agents were protecting. Um, and it was just a non-starter, you know, they'd let me talk into their little 
wrist likes and it wasn't a big <laughs> deal. But looking back on it, you know, <laughs> looking back on it, it was kind of a big deal. <laughs> So when you, when you think about McLean, I have never been there. When you think about McLean, is it a typical American town or is it different or, or how would you describe it compared to like. It's it's a wealthy American town. I think that it's one of the richest cities. McLean and Great Falls, I think are some of the wealthiest cities in the country. And so for the, um, the kid, you can only speak from your own perspective. I know. So as a, as a, 15 year old living there did you do you feel feel like you had different concerns or the kids you knew in high school had different concerns than some of the other kids you met in your you know previous high school and your next high school and in your next life or was it pretty much the same stuff i mean coming from prince george's county maryland which is where we were on andrews air force base before that and coming from new orleans prior to that i think that um that concerns were vastly different. And I think that academia and, you know, the, the push to succeed and the push to be the best and and the, the classes that you took to do better in class was a lot more of a thing in McLean than it was anywhere else that I'd been previously. I didn't realize how competitive school could be, I think, prior to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and... You know, all of my friends had cars when they turned 16, and all of my friends could go shopping or to the movies or out to eat every weekend. And, you know, those were all privileges that I I was kind of surprised by because it wasn't what I was used to. Yeah, it was just a different set of challenges and a different set of standards. Yeah, Absolutely. And there's still the stress and the pressure and that achievement kind of mentality. And it, it's like, there's always something, you know, it was just a different something there. And were there actually diplomats and senators kids in your class? Yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. Their, their lives yeah. are different. Their lives are different than ours. I, I presume. Um, I think that their access is different. Think that they just see and experience different things because of, you know, the the rooms that their parents are in. Got it. Yeah, it's just a different set of circumstances and a different set. Their life just looks uh-huh. different. Different perspective. Right. Exactly. So, Tyler, you got to participate in the Millennials Rising book, and I'm going to read you a quote, and it's your quote that uh, opens the book. And I just wanted to, I wanted to ask you some questions about her. Okay. Um, This is, you're quoted. uh, We're the millennial generation. We're special, one of a kind. It's our turn. It's our time to shine. Just hearing that out loud. I'm sure you haven't read that in a while. How would you describe the person who's quoted there? Um, Naive and very optimistic, but I, I like that about myself. Tell me more. Um, I think that that kind of optimism and hopefulness is something that's an important thing to carry through life. And I think that it helps a person to, you know, make it through the hard times if you believe that things are going to be good or get better or that it all will, you know, work out eventually. And I think that that's kind of what that quote demonstrates about me personally. 
mm-hmm. and about a lot of my peers as well. So do you, do you consider yourself a pessimist now? No, definitely not. What are, what are, how do you describe your outlook now? I'd say it's still optimistic. Um, and, oh, go ahead. I'd say it's more, it's more rooted in reality than it was then because I have more experience from which to pull, but I, it's definitely still optimistic. And you, your first word that you used to describe the quote was naive. What, what do you think was missing? What was the, what was that? What were you naive to when you were 16 and you gave that quote? I think that as a, as a child, a lot of parents teach, teach their kids that the world is their oyster and that anything is achievable and that things are, things are all going to be beautiful and wonderful. And I think that the naivety, naivete, I guess, comes from not understanding that while all things are achievable and attainable and the world is your oyster, there's a lot of, you know, there, there's the balance to strike. It's a seesaw. It's not always beautiful and wonderful and perfect. And but it sounds like you have held on to optimism. Uh, I've spoken to you now. This is the second time we've spoken. You sound very optimistic and just generally open-minded and happy. Do you think? Yeah. It's not like you've gotten beaten down. Do you think that's typical for the for other millennials? I think that. Watching my friends grow up and turn into the amazing humans that they've become, I, I think that, yeah, there's kind of a a grit and determination and also a pursuit of happiness. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's characteristic of most of the people I know um, in my in my kind of peer group, friend group, age bracket. And what I think is interesting about talking to you, Tyler, is you you spent time in McLean. You're part of this the story of millennials rising, but you lived all over the U.S. And so when you say your friend uh-huh. group, actually your point of view to me is maybe more representative than the sample that was used to write millennials rising. I I do think that the sample was a little short sighted. I agree. Do you, can you? Go ahead. Say that again. I'm sorry. I think that pulling from that one bracket, that one demographic of high schoolers at McLean is a bracket of privilege and ha- and wealth and of having people who are not wanting for food or, or safety or shelter. Um, and I think that that's something that wasn't taken into consideration when pulling that sample. So you have the visibility of this broad set of friends from cities across America as both youth and today, as you just mentioned, you've seen them grow into special human beings, which is amazing experience to have as we see our friends grow up. Does the, how do you describe the millennial generation, you know, as an, as an open-ended, how do you think about your generation now? think about us as fluid and flexible and um, I think about us as people who are interested in physical and mental well-being. I think of us as people who are accepting and open. Um, I think about us as people who 
are, are willing to try new things and are open to change. I, I think that some of the uncertainty of the past, you know, decades has really helped us to become people who can interact in a, multiple different environments in multiple different ways successfully without it being um, something that, that breaks us. But I do see a lot of anxiety and kind of stress and um, like mental health issues amongst my peer group as well. And I don't know if that's always been present and we're only talking about it more now or mm -hmm. if it's a, a new phenomenon, you know, I can't speak to that. Um, and I'm sure it's probably some combination of both. But I think that the fact that people are talking about it is definitely a healthy thing. Yeah, I agree with you there. Um, do you think that stress is unique? The stress that you're seeing and the, and some of the mental health that may be related to stress, um, some of those challenges, do you think they're unique to millennials or do you think that it is a certain point in life or a, per, a certain common factor maybe across generations that you reach it and all of a sudden stress lands on you? I think that everyone experiences it. I don't think that we're or special in the fact that we're, we're stressed out or have anxiety. I just think that, you know, having lived through financial crises and 9-11 and like every generation has their, has their, you know, pivotal moments. And I just think that ours are, ours are different than previous generations. And so that manifests differently or presents differently. Yep. That makes sense to me. When you, when you think back about, being in McLean, being 15, and being asked about the millennial generation, that's a, that, like, I have a 14-year-old now, and if I asked her to write, what's the future uh -huh. look like for your generation, I know that what she would write would be inaccurate, because she's not a fortune teller, and I don't think you're clairvoyant, are you? No. <laughs> no, okay, just checking, you never know. No. <laughs> um, how do you, how do you, when you look back on your predictions, you know, how do you feel about your prognostications of, you know, what the future would hold for the entire millennial generation? I think that it, I mean, I, I was correct and incorrect, I think. Um, I don't think that my, what did you say, prognosis was accurate entirely, but I also don't think that it was inaccurate. Um, I I like how hopeful it was. I think that I'm still a hopeful person. I can't speak to other people, but I know that most of my most of my friends are. Um, and I think that millennials get a bad rap. You know, like I, everyone thinks that we can't hold down a job and can't buy a house and lack direction. And I don't I don't think that's true. I think we're just more open to going after what we actually want than dedicating ourselves to something that doesn't make us happy. That's interesting. We have done an episode on the ridiculous headlines that say, you know, millennials killed X or Y or millennials are responsible for this stupid right. thing. <laughs> have you read many of those? Do you have a favorite? Um, I've read some of them, but I also kind of just like, this is so dumb, you know, like I don't, <laughs> I don't buy it. <laughs> do you so I don't really I don't really put my energy into it okay good it sounds like you're very wise with the way you spend your energy oh thank you sometimes we all have our moments sure 
Sure. Do you eat avocado toast? I do not, but mostly because I get made fun of for eating avocado toast. <laughs> so have you been bullied from eating avocado toast? By the internet. Yeah. Yeah. Has the, ha, well, that, that actually I'm joking, but it brings up a good question. Has the internet and the ridiculous headlines because I know you're so optimistic, does reading about this in the newspaper and online, has it changed any other behaviors or given you any pause about your you know, life or the world or the generation that you're a part of? Um, maybe just in the fact that I don't want to be a cliche. Mm -hmm. So, you know, things like things like avocado toast or things that are viral about us. I'm just kind of like, okay, well, I'm not going to participate in that because I don't drink pumpkin spice lattes. I don't eat avocado toast. I, you know, don't go spend $200 at Target every weekend. Um, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> none of those things, by the way, none of those things are exclusive to gen, uh, to millennials, by the way. I am. Uh, I, I know. <laughs> I'm Gen X and I do eat avocado toast. My wife is Gen X. She definitely spends $200 at Target. Um, neither I eat it in the, the privacy of my own home. I don't Good. order it in a restaurant. <laughs> you don't want anybody to be able to get it on video and po post it on Twitter and make fun of you. Right, exactly. I don't want to be on a, on some some generation Z's TikTok. <laughs> Do you think, oh God, the generational battles drive me nuts. Um, <laughs> Do you think that other people read those, other millennials read some of that, those stories and are concerned about becoming a millennial cliche? I've never thought about that. My brother and sister-in-law are also millennials. They're three years younger than me. And I think they're a lot more in touch with the internet world and the meme world and and all of that than I am. I think that they, they spend more, they pay more attention than I do. Um, and, you know, in, in good fun, we, we all make fun of ourselves and each other. And <laughs> I have a chat with, with my sister-in-law and her sister, and it's, you know, memes for sisters, and we basically just send each other back and forth, you know, <laughs> things that make fun of us. <laughs> I like it. As millennials. Yeah, like you, pages. Does this topic come up? Does Millennials Rising come up? I reached out to you cold, I think on LinkedIn, and you were like, oh, is this about uh -huh. the book? <laughs> um, it comes up every now and then, because if you Google me, it's one of the one of the searches that comes up, so people uh -huh. ask about that are they asking questions like are they have they read the book are they interested in the book or is it just like tell me about it you were in a book what's that mean it's yeah more the latter than the former i think that i don't think they're interested in it they're like wait you were you're quoted in a book you're published I'm like no 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 i'm not published i'm quoted yeah <laughs> <laughs> and then, still pretty cool <laughs> yeah yeah and you know when when the when they wrote this book, they kind of coined this image of what millennials were. And, and in large part, they open with this quote from you. It's very optimistic. It's very positive. Um, over time, we got to the cliche that we have now. Have you, we talked about how maybe you feel about this, the headlines now and the potential for cliche zone and the meme zone. But over time, like let's say in 2010, you know, 2015, have you observed a change in that narrative in the media? Yeah, definitely. 
definitely. I, I don't think there's anyone, I, most of what I was hearing prior to the past maybe five or 10 years has been, you know, oh, these kids have lived through 9-11, they've lived through the financial crisis, they've lived through this, you know, war in the Middle East that's been going on forever. They've, you know, they've seen so much and been through so much. Um, and now I think that the narrative has changed a little bit to sound more against us. And mm -hmm. like, wait, what? what? When did I, when did I become the enemy? What did, what did we, what did we ever do? I don't understand. <laughs> I, that's what we're, that's what our show is about. We're trying to figure that out. We don't know, we don't know why uh, reporters all of a sudden are anti-millennials, especially since so many reporters are millennials. Maybe it's self-loathing. Maybe it is self-loathing. <laughs> <laughs> Send them to therapy. Yeah, exactly. Stop taking it out on us. <laughs> exactly. So I asked you, I read it to you before and, uh -huh. and asked you to describe the person who's quoted. Now, does it hit you? differently? Um, it kind of brings back all of what I felt when I wrote it the first time. Um, and, and, you know, kind of like, like I truly believed that I was, I was 100% in on, on that quote and could not possibly have felt more strongly that that was true. And that kind of brings back that feeling. Um, and I and I still agree with it, but I don't necessarily think that it's it's different generation by generation. I think we could say that about every generation. That's an interesting observation. I, I think as people get, you know, as people go to college, their mindset changes. As they start in the workforce, their mindset changes again. As they have kids, as they buy a house, like it, the weight stacks up. Yeah. As more as more responsibilities and more ownership of, of your life. It's funny because they put so much, you know, they open the book with that quote, but when you read it and, and then they refer back to it throughout the book and, and sort of the attitude of it. But when you read it, it's kind of an empty vessel. It's like a Rorschach. You don't really say anything specific in the quote. No, not at all. Um, and, and so the author's using it as a tool is kind of, like it's free interpretation. They can they can do do their, what they will with it. It's not it's not specific. Yeah, I think that's that's part of the challenge is they read into it their way, and you can read into it any way you want, really. Right. And well, I my don't intention have... behind it was just that I believed it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you believed it, though. Yeah, me too. I don't, I wonder if I asked my kids to describe their generation, if they would be this optimistic, I bet they would not. I think that there's a lot more exposure these days than there was when I was growing up. You know, like we, our house had a computer and I used AIM as a teenager, but like I wasn't on social media and you know, news exposure was, limited our tv time was limited so i think that i think that your kids would probably have a lot more um like reference points than mm -hmm. maybe i had that's fair i think you're right about that and probably less less optimistic because of what all the news they consume or or uh, passively consume right because they 
Exactly. And news is the news isn't good. The news isn't positive. It does not feel positive, no. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Tyler. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Okay. Bye. On the next episode of In the Demo, Farah looks at the basics of market and audience research to help contextualize how some of the millennial forecasts went so far off track. I'm your robot host, Eliza. Please be kind. In the Demo is produced by Farah Bostic and Adam Piano, with support from the Difference Engine. Music by Omega Man, under the Creative Commons license. Go to inthedemopodcast.com for behind-the-scenes research and supporting information.